0: Okay, so Luke 17, uh, verses 1 to 10. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and it in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit to eat? (laughs) Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So also, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now i going to invite Rowan to come up and speak.
1: It's great to see you here this afternoon as we come to think about God's word together here in the Gospel of Luke 1 and i lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on your word here together today. We pray, Lord, that in your mercy you might help us to understand what's been recorded for us so that we might hear you speak And know how to live to your praise and glory. Amen. I want to talk to you today about something that is both profound, powerful, and despised. Profound, powerful, and despised. It's not politics, though that meets most of the categories. Despised, yes. Powerful, yes. Profound, okay, not profound. It's not mathematics, which also is profound, powerful, And much despised. (laughs) I speak that as one who spent too many years studying mathematics. I want to speak to you about something that is truly profound, powerful and yet despised. It is forgiveness. I think forgiveness is quite despised in our world. Forgiveness is seen as the secondary course, the course you choose when only you can't wreak vengeance. Your first choice would be to punish the person to seek vengeance upon them. But if you can't do that, well, I guess just it'll help your own state of mind if you can at least forgive them. It's seen actually as a mark of weakness, I think, in our world. But let me say, if you've ever been forgiven for something you did, you know what a profound experience that is. You might know how powerful that is. And yes, if you've had to extend forgiveness to others, then you might know how painful it is too. I want to talk today about forgiveness. The reason I want to talk about forgiveness is because what we've been doing here over these last three weeks, looking at this section of Luke's Gospel in the Christian New Testament, is we've been following Jesus along a road. From Luke chapter 9 verse 51 through to chapter 19, Jesus is literally on a road trip. He's he's following along a road. He's headed towards Jerusalem. We know... What's going to happen when he gets there? We know because Jesus knew and he told his followers what would happen. He knew that when he got to Jerusalem, he would be rejected by the Jewish leaders, he would be killed, and he believed he would be raised again to life by his heavenly Father. So, we know what's going to happen. He's on this road. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone to you know, that great, delightful, maybe the most vibrant city in Australia, namely Canberra, but when you go to... Why do you laugh? I don't know. But when you go to Canberra, Canberra is surrounded by what they call mountains. Um, they're called mountains, but actually they're little hills. You can literally sort of jog up one and jog down. again. Like they're, very, they're little mole hills, but we call them mountains. And if you get very close to one of those mountains, as you are following the road towards it, if the, the sun's in the right spot, a lot of you go along the road your journey along the road is literally in the shadow of the mountain, right? Well, as Jesus is on this road towards Jerusalem, he's travelling in a shadow. The shadow that is falling across him, across the whole of the road, is the shadow of the cross, his own coming death. And it colours everything. That shadow falls across everything he says as he talks about what it means to follow him along this road. In fact, right back in chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, if you want to follow me on this road, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow after me. That life following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, being a Christian, if that's what you call yourself, means travelling along this road with Jesus, the road that is in the shadow of the cross. And what we've seen as we've been going along this road the last few weeks is we've seen that Jesus' teaching on being a disciple is very challenging. It challenges us personally about ourselves and our view of ourselves and it challenges our relationships with others. So a couple of weeks ago we saw that one of the critical marks of being Jesus' disciple is humility, challenges your view of yourself before God, that God lifts up the humble. But we also saw that that then challenged us to say, well, true humility is expressed in extending a welcome to other people. Do you see how it affects our view of ourselves but also our relationships with others? We saw the same last week where we saw that following Jesus along this road in discipleship is going to mean maybe division, maybe even within your own family, division because you follow Jesus. So that's challenging to you personally, but we also saw a flip side of that is that actually... When we start to follow Jesus in faith, we are brought into a new family, a new family of God with brothers and sisters in Christ and it challenges us to check whether we are actually treating one another as the new family of God. So there's always this sort of two-pronged, two-pronged sort of challenge, challenge to us personally and challenge to our relationships. We're going to see the same thing today with respect to Forgiveness. So where we're at is Luke chapter 17, which Matt just read for us. It would be really helpful if you could open that up. We're looking at just the first ten verses here. i picked this little section because this sort of idea of forgiveness and sin and love, that's a significant theme in what Jesus talks about in these chapters. And some people say that what we're reading here in these ten verses are not necessarily connected. Maybe they're just sort of some random sort of statements of Jesus that Luke's just sort of brought together in a bit of a mash-up. And actually, I think these are quite profoundly closely related. You can see, I think, as we sort of dig into them, why Luke has brought these sayings of Jesus together into this particular moment. So, four headings there. First of all, unreasonable care, under the big heading of unreasonable Jesus. First of all, unreasonable care. I'm looking at the first three verses of Luke 17, so it would be helpful if you had that open, Luke 17, or look on with the person next to you. And the point here is pretty straightforward. The point is, Jesus' point, is watch out that you don't cause other people to stumble into sin. Watch out that you don't cause other people to stumble into sin. Let's have a listen to what Jesus says. 17 verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round your neck Than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Now Jesus is going along a road, but when he's talking about stumbling, he's not talking about potholes or sort of little obstacles you you know you stick your foot out to trip somebody over. What he's talking about is stumbling into sin. He's saying, Watch out that you don't cause other people to stumble into sin. And already in Luke's Gospel, in Jesus' teaching, he's told us about things that might cause Christians to stumble into sin. Uh, Back in the parable of the soils, in Luke chapter 8, he listed a few. He said persecution can cause someone to stumble in sin, cause you to give up your faith. Or sometimes life's riches can cause you to stumble. They're just too attractive for you and so you give up your faith. Or life's pleasures, just taken by hedonism. Or he also says sometimes life's anxieties, life's worries can choke out faith. All these different things are external things that could cause a Christian to stumble. But what Jesus is talking about here is not external things, he's talking about other Christians who might cause you to stumble. How might another Christian brother or sister cause you to stumble? Or how might you be causing another Christian to stumble into sin? Now, bearing in mind the fact that Jesus has said, this is a very bad thing to do. I'm about to do a very stupid thing. I'm about to tell you my six top tips for causing someone to stumble. Just so you sort of you know how to do it or how not to do it. All right? Here are my six top tips, all of which are New Testament proven. That is, they're taken from examples in the New Testament where people in the name of God have caused other people to stumble, okay? You might like to jot them down really quickly. Here's the first one. My first top tip causing other people to stumble into sin is this. Set them a bad example. Set them a bad example. Almost sure to lead them into sin. I'll give you an example from the New Testament. Uh, The Apostle Peter, the great Apostle Peter no less, when he arrived in Antioch, according to Paul's account in Galatians chapter 2, he arrived in Antioch and for some reason, he started, as a Jewish follower of Jesus, he started removing himself from the non-Jewish followers of Jesus as though they weren't really kosher and actually saying, no, I'm going... And so he separated himself from other followers of Jesus and then according to Paul in Galatians 2, that caused a whole bunch of Jewish believers to do the same and including the mighty Barnabas. Barnabas, who was one of the key people who got the Apostle Paul sort of into ministry. These people were all led astray and Paul's comment there was because of that, Peter stood condemned. By his bad example, he caused others to follow him into sin. Now, how might you do that? Maybe eating with non-Jewish believers is not an issue for you or in your community since my guess is, tragically, in most of our churches, almost everyone is a non-Jewish believer. But here's one simple way that the New Testament talks about By your speech. By the example you set with your tongue. Whether you gossip or not. Whether you slander or not. How you talk about people behind their backs. What sort of words and language comes out of your mouth for building up or tearing down? See, the fact is, how you use your tongue, that's going to influence others. What they see you do, they'll think is fine and do, do likewise now you might be going well come on i'm not actually responsible for someone else's actions i mean they've got to own to-. yes they are personally responsible but guess what you are just completely taken with sort of enlightenment individualism at that point if you think it's just about you and god and they're just them because the picture in the bible is it's about us together it's a corporate vision of the people of god so there's my first quick way, set them a bad example. Second quick way, teach them something that's not true. Teach them something that's not true. Uh, there's examples in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Philetus who are teaching people that the resurrection had already happened. I think what they mean by that, probably the sense that the resurrection is a spiritual reality only and therefore what you do with your body doesn't matter anymore. You can do whatever you like with your body, it seems, according to them, because You've been raised spiritually with Jesus. This was a false teaching. And Paul's comment there was, they were destroying the faith of some with this false teaching. What sort of false teaching might you be tempted to engage in? Or it could be all sorts of things. Maybe it's a temptation to sort of to, to buy into prosperity gospel preaching. That God wants you to be fully healthy now. That God wants you to be fully wealthy now. And I tell you what, that destroys people's faith when we teach that sort of falsehood. Or maybe it's actually, you feel pressure from the world and so you go, surely the Bible's sort of teaching on sexual ethics is a bit too narrow, a bit too sort of old-fashioned and blinkered. Surely, if I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend and we really do care for each other and seek to serve each other, then surely that's okay, right? And surely marriage or sex, rather, shouldn't just be kept... Them For marriage and male-female marriage at that like isn't that a terribly narrow old-fashioned sort of view we can be tempted in all sorts of ways to teach things that are just not true according to the scriptures and when we teach those sort of things then certainly we will lead people into error into sin cause them to stumble so there's two quick ways the third quick way uh, you could encourage people to sin against their conscience Now, how would you do that? How would you encourage someone to sin against their conscience? Well, there's an example in the New Testament of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. A big issue was if you wanted to have a barbecue with meat, you went to your meat market and you purchased meat, but that meat from the meat market had almost certainly been used in a pagan sacrifice. It had already been offered to some sort of pagan idol before you bought it. And some Christians had a conscience about that. They're going, well, if it's been involved in idol worship, that piece of T-bone steak... I'm not, it's surely not right for us to take that and use that and just eat that happily. Now, the Apostle Paul is very clear. He says, theologically, there is no problem with eating that T-bone steak. Theologically, there is no problem with it. However, very interesting, he says, but if it's a problem for you, if you have a tender conscience about this issue as a follower of Jesus, then I will not eat meat. I will not eat meat if eating meat is going to cause you to stumble or fall. Now, how would that work in our context? Well, I think there's all sorts of issues in our Christian community of which particular brothers and sisters might have an, is- have a, an issue of conscience. I'll just throw at you some examples. What about the use of alcohol? What about going clubbing? <coughs> and you go, oh, come on, clubbing. I mean, I know some people have an issue with that, but for real, like... Yeah, because the, the thing is, it's not about you enjoying your freedoms in Christ just so that you can enjoy them. It's actually about you limiting your genuine liberty in Christ out of love for a brother or sister who has a conscience issue over that. If you engaging in certain activity, be it alcohol, be it clubbing, be it levels of f- physical intimacy, being it modesty and the sort of clothing you... Whatever it is that's actually going to actually make it hard for that other person as a matter of conscience, that they feel then pressured in some way to join in, even though they have a bit of an issue with it. Then that's a problem. That's our problem. So there's all sorts of ways I think that we could, maybe unintentionally, maybe unknowingly, encourage someone to sin against their conscience. We need to be careful of that. Now, there's lots of other ways which I don't have time to talk about. There's hypocrisy. That's a great way to cause someone to stumble, lead them into sin. Legalism, invent new Christian rules and impose them upon them. That's a surefire way to sort of kill faith, I think. And uh, excluding people is yet another way to cause them to stumble. There's lots of ways that we can cause someone to stumble. The point Jesus is making is this is incredibly serious when we cause somebody else to stumble into sin. Notice what he says there. It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round your neck than to lead one of these little ones into sin. Now, a millstone was a big whopping stone, not a little pebble. It's a big stone that you used for sort of crushing grain. You sort of put a big millstone on top of a big sort of foundation stone. You might actually get some sort of pack animal to drive this stone around. It's big, right? heavy. Can you imagine what it would be like if I tied that millstone around your neck and we took you out and dumped you off the heads into the Pacific Ocean. Down you go, brother. Forget cement shoes, let's go millstones. Jesus is saying, it would be better for that to happen to you than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. It's not a life matter for Jesus, how we treat one another the level of care we show for one another. It's incredibly serious. So Jesus' application is simple. Watch yourself. Watch yourself that you don't cause someone else to stumble. Okay, so that's Jesus on unreasonable care. Then he flips it. Instead of talking about us maybe accidentally, inadvertently causing someone else to stumble into sin, he says, what about if you're sinned against? He flips it and let's talk about unreasonable forgiveness now jesus point here is very simple again it's that forgiveness is like one of those bottomless refills you know when you get that bottomless refill you just keep going you can just keep filling it up you can stay there until they kick you out and technically i reckon you could probably say you could come back to the next day if they kicked you out and just keep going right forever you could try that sometime you know just keep going it's He's saying forgiveness is a bottomless refill that we give to one another. That we we give to one another. Luke chapter 17 there, verses 3 and 4. If a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So notice here, there's actually two responses. If someone sins against you here within the family of God, the first thing is rebuke them. Now that's a message I'm happy to hear. You know, the sweet opportunity of a, just a kind rebuke. You know, when someone sins against you, it's your opportunity to really stick it to them by teaching them what they ordered. No, this is not how it works, right? Rebuking in the New Testament, in the Scriptures, it needs to be motivated out of love... Genuine love, not vengeance. The mode of rebuke in the New Testament is gently, not aggressively. And the goal of rebuke in the New Testament is that they might come to repentance and you might be reconciled, not wounding the other, a way of Christianly wounding the other person, getting back at them. And the New Testament has quite a lot of information about how you go about rebuking somebody in love, gently, with a, with a goal of reconciliation. Uh, in particular, if you read later Matthew 18, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, where Matthew records similar teaching of Jesus but gives a little bit more detail onto what Jesus said about it, you'll notice there that he, he says that if someone sins against you, the first thing you should do is speak to the person personally. Now that alone is reasonably challenging for us because I tell you if I'm sinned against the first thing I want to do the first person I want to talk to isn't God and it isn't that other person the first person I want to talk to is anybody else. Let me tell you what just happened to me. Jesus says no what you do is you go and speak to the person. If they listen to you Jesus says "then, then you have won them over that is, they listen to you and repent, that's fantastic, what a great outcome. That's what you want. He says, if they won't listen to you, then take one or two others with you and go and see the person. And he says, only if they won't listen to that, then finally bring it to the church. So, that's the point where you grab the microphone on a Sunday at a meeting and say, by the way, everybody, John over there sinned against me the other day. No, that's not what he's saying. You'd go to... That's not what he's saying. When he says, tell it to the church, I think he means go and talk to the elders. Talk to the people who have pastoral responsibility for the life of the community of God so that they might, if necessary, actually help that person to repentance through discipline. There is actually a way of doing it. In fact, the New Testament tells other things. It tells you about what do you do if the person's older than you? What you What do you do in that sort of situation? Or what do you do if it's actually an elder who sinned against you? So, if information on that sort of stuff, you need to go and look up 1 Timothy chapter 5. But there's lots of information in the New Testament on how you would go about this. But the application for us, I think, is that if you're sinned against, actually going back to the person and saying something to them is incredibly challenging to do, gently and in love with a goal of reconciliation. That's really hardcore stuff. Because if you've been sinned against, to then go back to that person makes you feel very vulnerable. And so maybe you do need the encouragement of a brother or sister to go and do that, but just please be careful of gossip. Have clearly in mind what the goal is here. The other sort of little, little just sort of a bit of advice I get is something that someone gave to me once and I think has proved very helpful. When you're feeling sinned against, instead of assuming injury, they've set out to injure me, Assume incompetence or ignorance. Assume they basically a, they don't know what they're doing. They're just incompetent. They were trying to do a good thing, but just it caused me harm. Or assume ignorance. They—they have—they don't know the effect of what they did. Start with those assumptions. I think, as brothers and sisters within the people of God, that's a good place to start, rather than just assuming injury that may also help you to approach the matter gently and in love. Okay, so that's the first response, rebuke. But notice then the second thing, which is really Jesus' emphasis here, if they repent, then forgive them. Now, this, uh, this requires a little bit of reflection. If they repent, forgive them. So, I've got a couple of questions there. Is that saying that forgiveness within the Christian community is conditional that I only need to forgive you if you repent. Now, I'm just noticing in this passage, yes, the forgiveness expressed in this passage is conditional on the other person's repentance. But I'll also just point out this passage is not actually asking the question or even trying to answer if they don't repent, do I need to forgive them? That's not actually on Jesus' mind here. On Jesus' mind here is, how often do I need to forgive them when they do repent? Okay? But I think here, yes, the picture is forgiveness is conditional here on their repentance. The assumption is, I take it, that you will forgive people just like your Heavenly Father forgives you. You will keep on forgiving just as He keeps on forgiving us. That's what was there actually in the Lord's Prayer back in Luke chapter 11 verse 4. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The assumption is that we will be people who reflect His forgiveness of us in our interpersonal relationships. Now, repentance here is more than just, oh, I'm sorry. Um, tragically, my kids are a good example of this. Very easy for children to just go, oh, yeah, sorry. In fact, they normally just go, sorry. <laughs> Repentance is not just saying sorry. Repentance is is not even just a self-focused sort of remorse. Oh, I'm sorry because I don't want things to be bad between us. I'm really... Which can be a bit selfish and self-focused, actually. Repentance is saying, actually, I've wronged you. I've wronged you and I... I'm troubled by that. I I need to fix it up with you. I I need to seek your forgiveness. I need to make restitution, maybe. I need to actually try to fix it up. That's repentance. It comes from the heart and it's other person-centred. And Jesus' point is that when someone repents like that, you need to forgive them. Now, what does it mean to forgive someone, though? Does that mean well, does that mean I just, I'm just meant to sort of forget about it? Like, just pretend it never happened? Is that what I'm, I'm meant to do? What about if it was a really serious thing they did? I'm just meant to pretend it never happened or act like it never happened? Well, no, I think we need to be careful here because I have often heard people talk about that real forgiveness equals forgetting, treating them as though it never happened. Well, that's right and wrong, I think. Think clearly in the New Testament, forgiveness does look like not bearing any grudge. If you forgive somebody, you are not bearing a grudge against them. You are not bearing them any ill will. There is no more bitterness in you about this. Forgiveness is necessary with repentance, I think, if you want to have the relationship restored, to have reconciliation occur. But I don't think it means just acting as though it had never happened. May I say... There are some heinous sins, terrible sins that people commit against each other, even Christians. And even if a person seeks or offers repentance, comes back and repents from that sin, I don't think it necessarily means that we ought to just pretend it had never happened. I'll tell you why. It's because sometimes if someone has committed a particularly heinous sin, clearly in that situation they've given way to temptation. right? They've given in to temptation when they shouldn't have. If we don't as a community endeavour to help that person stay away from temptation, it's quite possible that they will succumb again. So actually out of genuine love and care for their holiness, Sometimes it's right to even put boundaries around to say, yes, I know you've repented. I believe that's genuine. I've seen signs of that repentance in your sort of um, desire to, to make restitution, recompense. And I bear no ill will toward you. I bear no grudge against you. I will not be bitter about you but for your sake, for holiness, to help you in holiness, we're not going to go into that situation again like that. I'm thinking of uh, terrible situations where there's been abuse, where sometimes I think it might be right to maintain helpful boundaries, not in order to punish a person, not to exclude them from the fellowship of the community of God, but out of a genuine concern for holiness. Anyway, so that, that probably bears some more reflection and talking together, doesn't it? To try to seek a way of wisdom in that. Um, what happens, people say, if the person doesn't repent? Do I, am I then called upon to forgive them? Well, in Matthew 18, where Jesus gives a bit more detail, he says that if a person doesn't repent, then treat them as an unbeliever. That doesn't mean don't love them. We're to love all people, including our enemies. But I think it says if a person won't repent of a particular sin then what does that say about them being a disciple of Jesus? Being a disciple of Jesus means that we embrace repentance when we sin. And if a person won't repent, then I think it means that they're not a believer, they're not a follower of Jesus. And we just need to acknowledge that and seek seek to encourage them towards becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a Christian and submitting their life to the Lordship of Christ. Okay, but the real challenge of Jesus here, as I said, is to keep on forgiving even if a person would sin against you seven times in a day. Now, I must admit, when I started thinking about this passage, I thought, that's clearly, clearly Jesus is using hyperbole. Can you even imagine a situation where someone would sin against you and then go, oh, and repent, genuinely repent, and then 15 minutes later comes and sins against you again and then repents and then 30 minutes later comes and does it seven times in a day, in one day clearly a hyperbole, right? And then it occurred to me, no, <laughs> Jesus is not using hyperbole, he's talking about parenthood. <laughs> he's talking about having children, because seven times in a day, that's before breakfast. <laughs> like in terms of the number of times that they can say, sorry, sometimes with tears, and then five minutes, anyway, I'll just calm down, but anyway, we'll just... I think Jesus is actually thinking hyperbole, using hyperbole here to make a point, to make a point. There is no limit. If someone repents, there is no limit to how often we will forgive them. We, un- we cannot go, sorry, I've forgiven you seven times, that's it. That's, that's the end of reasonable levels of forgiveness. And why can't we do that? It's because, well, we're to reflect God's forgiveness of us. Does God do that to you? Does God say, sorry, that's 3,546 times today you've sinned against me? But you know the limit is 3,445 times. You're over the line now, that's it, no more forgiveness. No, as we repent, praise God that he lavishes grace and forgiveness and love on us, doesn't he? And we're to reflect that in our relationships one with another. Now, that may have raised some really big issues for you. Can I encourage you? Please come and talk to me afterwards or grab a Christian friend and talk with them afterwards because I don't pretend these are light issues. I don't pretend this is an easy teaching of Jesus. But it does require wisdom in knowing how to go about it. Okay? Alright, so I'm going to rush through the last couple. That's unreasonable care and unreasonable forgiveness. I think the response of the apostles at this point is very understandable. When you've just heard Jesus talk about this seemingly unreasonable level of forgiveness i'm with the apostles when they say here lord verse 5 increase our faith how could we possibly live like this how, like if that's what it takes to be your follower you're going to need to increase our faith because that's that's way too much for me right i i get that but look at jesus answer under the heading of unreasonable faith he says, verse 6, Jesus replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Okay, so Jesus gets getting fully weird here, right? <laughs> Let's just think about that for a moment. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Then I could say, well, this mulberry tree, like, it sort of... Doesn't this just... This saying of Jesus just reek of, you know, a real historicity? They're walking along... They say, Lord, you're going to need to increase our faith. He says, you had faith just a side of a mustard tree. So you could say to this mulberry tree that we're walking past, get up and plant in the sea. And now mulberry trees are, don't think mulberry bush, think mulberry tree, right? Google it, Google image. I did, ooh, they're big. And they're big trees. <laughs> they're big trees with massive, known for their massive root systems. That's the you're saying it will uproot itself. You're going, up. They have massive root systems, apparently could live for up to 600 years because of the depth and extent of their, their root system. He's saying, you just have faith the size of a mustard seed. You can tell that tree, get up, plant yourself in the sea. and it will do it. Now, my response, and it's probably your response, you go, well, that means that no one probably has real faith. No, surely that means no one's got, none of us have faith even the size of a like, mustard Has anyone ever been able to do that? Jesus is not talking literally here. This is clearly hyperbole. It's it's an example. What's his point? His point is the smallest amount of faith can do extraordinary things. The smallest amount of faith can do extraordinary things. You guys saying, increase our faith. We couldn't possibly forgive like you want us to forgive Jesus. You're saying, increase our faith. He says, no, you don't need to increase just the smallest amount of faith will do extraordinary things you don't need me to increase your faith if you have the faith act on it step out in that faith and do it don't sit back and wait for it all to be sort of somehow magically you'd be transformed into a, this awesome forgiveness person you've got faith in me faith in christ that means you've got the power of the Holy Spirit in you. That means you can do this. How? How could I possibly do that? How could I forgive like that? I'll tell you the answer, actually. Remember what road you were on. What road are you on? The road following Jesus to the cross. What does that cross represent? It represents just how much I've been forgiven. It represents how much I know you have been forgiven. It represents where your sin against me was punished by God and dealt with by God. So because I know that I am forgiven, as you are, and because I look through the cross, at you. I'm able to trust Jesus and forgive you when you repent. It's not that I have to suddenly absorb all the pain of that because it's been absorbed at the cross. So I look through the cross to forgive you when you repent. That's what's stepping out in faith. That's faith beside us of a sort of mustard seed. That's the amazing things it can do. That's unreasonable faith. And then Jesus finishes with unre- with uh, sorry, reasonable duty, reasonable duty in verses 7 to 10. Jesus' point here is very simple. I think it ties in like this. that This sort of is the end of a whole section where Jesus has been talking about discipleship and it applies to what we've just talked about but I think it actually applies to a whole lot of things Jesus has said. His basic point is, don't think that living like this, don't think that actually doing this makes you some sort of hero. Right? You, forgi- you, you step out in faith and you start forgiving people, that doesn't make you a hero and it certainly doesn't mean that God owes you something because you live like this. He uh, makes this point via a parable. You can read the parable there verses 7 to 10. And basically saying, if, you, if you're a master of a household and you've got a servant, if a servant has been working in the fields for you all day and then comes in, you don't then say to the servant, oh, wow, servant, you've, you've worked so hard. Why don't you sit down and let me be the servant and I'll, I'll, I'll serve you. you. You be the master. You See, that's not how it works. The servant is a servant. Loved, yes, cared for, certainly but the servant and his point Jesus' point is so you also when you have done everything you were told to do you should say we are unworthy servants we've only done our duty forgiving like this showing this sort of level of care that you don't cause others doesn't make you a hero doesn't put God in your debt this is just our duty now we don't like the word duty in fact we think it is a It is a horrific word, almost. It's a dirty word, duty. We don't like it for two reasons. First of all, we feel like duty compromises my freedom. I don't want any obligations. I don't want any responsibilities. I just want to do what I want to do. So we think that duty compromises our freedom. And secondly, we feel like to do something out of duty is somehow second rate. The real thing we value in our culture is do something out of desire. If you really do what you want to do well, it? you're doing because you really want to do it that's praiseworthy to do it out of duty is well that's a bit boring lame but I think the thing that Jesus is identifying here is there is a greater reality that we need to remember our lives are lived under that greater reality is that Jesus has been made Lord of heaven and earth and you have not been and neither have I And there is a moral rightness within that order, that Jesus is Lord and I am not. There is a moral rightness, actually, that I do what he asks me to do. And that's what discipleship is, actually. As we follow Jesus along the road, the road to his death, but the road to his life, we are just doing what ought to be done. Because he is Lord, not us. So we've reflected then on unreasonable care, unreasonable forgiveness, unreasonable faith. No, it's all our reasonable duty. And uh, someone's going to lead us in prayer.
2: Please pray with me. Dearest Lord, there are people we need to learn how to love and others we need to forgive. Soften our hearts and minds through your spirit to do this today. Help us to be joyful in love, remembering that without these challenges, we would never learn to love or forgive like Jesus does. Let us be your children, shining your powerful and profound and unreasonable love into this broken world. Above all, guard our hearts that they won't become hardened. Protect us from our weaknesses and give us the strength to live in unity together, caring for our brothers and sisters. We pray that we won't be guided by pride, gossip, and self-interest, knowing that forgiveness is accepting your sovereign use of people and situations to strip us of self-importance and humiliate our self-love. So keep us humble, Lord, for we cannot judge rightly and do not have any right to judge. Please steady us as we walk the narrow road in the shadow of your cross you demonstrated your incredible love and forgiveness for us help us to stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around our waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with our feet fitted in the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace we pray this in jesus name amen